0: This morning, I want to remind us that we are involved in a war that's going on that we don't see. I wanted to remind us that there is a cosmic battle that's happening every moment of every day, and it's very, very probable that we as God's church disconnect from that reality mentally, though it continues on day and night. There is a war going on for the human soul of every human being that lives on earth today. What surrounds the war is this. When God creates human beings in his image, we owe him perfection, sinless perfection. And so we all, every human being that exists has this, I owe you before God that we sign. Because perfection is what is required from the one who created us. But what happens then, and this is where the war and the battle comes in. Well, let me back up and say, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, when he refers to what we owe God, speaks of legal indebtedness. So there's this, I owe you to God for our conduct that we owe God perfection. And where the war comes in is Satan looks at us and says, did you pay this? Did you make good on your IOU for perfection? And the right true answer for all of us is no. Because we don't have the means to pay that. We don't have the means to live a perfect life. So Satan looks and says, have you done this? And we rightly respond no. And Satan says, you are Mine. If you can't pay, then you belong to me. And when life is done, it means eternal evil and horrors abound. So we stand in that place. And there's a war going on for the soul of every human being because every human being stands in that place. And God in his mercy and his love when he saw that predicament loved us in this way that he sent his son Jesus Christ to earth. Jesus lived sinless perfection where we couldn't. And then Jesus took this sheet, this IOU, and he went to the cross with it. And on the cross, he took your sin and my sin and the sin of all humanity and brought it upon himself. The Bible said, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And then on the cross, he endured the penalty and the payment for not paying this IOU to God. God the Father poured out his wrath, his punishment upon God the Son And as Jesus was on the cross, the work of the cross paid this in full. That's what happened at the cross. Jesus took the IOU that every human being owes and paid it in full. But here's the deal. You don't just get it automatically applied to every human being in the world. To have what Christ did for us in paying the IOU applied to our lives. The Bible says we have to give our lives to Christ. We have to repent and believe. We have to deny ourselves, take up his cross, and follow him. It's a change, a reorientation of our life, where now Jesus sits on the throne of our heart, no longer us. And when we make that decision and walk, then we have the benefit of what Jesus did for us. On the cross. But it doesn't stop there. The amazing thing is, it goes on. Not only did Jesus stand in the gap of our perfection not only did he pay the penalty that was due ours now he also says if you follow me and you walk through that when I come again which he will you will reign with me in the new heavens and the new earth in the world the way you dreamed it would be and you will live in that place forever and ever and ever and ever all that comes from the cross And so, there's a war going on for the souls of human beings. And our text today peeks into that world. And so, I'm going to encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open it up to Revelation chapter 6. As we dive in this morning, we see the end unfolding. Revelation chapter 6, if you're new to the Bible, Revelation is the last book at the end. Uh, If you're using an electronic version, I'll be in the NIV, New International Version, this morning. And we're going to start by looking back at the seals that we started to look at. There, if you remember, there's the scroll. No one was found worthy, and Jesus was found worthy. And he began opening the scroll by breaking the seven seals on it. And the first four seals were descriptions of what we see in our current world today. The suffering, the pain, the death the war. That's what was happening in the first four seals. Now, all of a sudden, John is taken back up to heaven, and we see something else. The book of Revelation is full of surprises. It always keeps us on our toes. But I want you to remember what's happening here in reality. So John the Apostle is on this island, Patmos, he's exiled there, God met him there in the vision of Jesus, and he's taken up, it says, into with the Spirit to see these visionary things. So he's there, the Holy Spirit is upon him, and all of a sudden he sees all these things that are happening in the book, and he writes this down for us. So that's what's going on. There's all these crazy things going on. And he, these are all the things he's seeing as he's having this visionary experience. And so we come to the fifth seal. The fifth seal. So let's take a look at that. Revelation chapter 6, 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until a full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. So now we're back in heaven. We're seeing this new image. We see around the altar there are people... Who have given their lives for their witness to Jesus Christ. We call them martyrs. These are real people that lived on earth and they had their lives taken from them because they refused to compromise Christianity. They refused to deny Jesus and who he is. And you may be thinking, this happened way back then. This happens today a lot. Maybe not so much in the United States, because we are a blessed nation in that way. But people are giving their lives today for the sake of the gospel. They're being tortured. They're being executed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. There's an organization I highly recommend to you called Voice of the Martyrs. I encourage you to check out their website. It's very easy to remember. It's persecution.com. Persecution.com. Go to the About section. Watch the video they have there. And you'll see this organization that helps people all around the world that face persecution because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It's important for us to learn. It's important for us to see Here in the U.S., I think we live in the fruits of having it too good because it just takes the slightest inconvenience or the littlest offense and we write off going to public worship. And when we see what our brothers and sisters are enduring and they continue to go and they never give up, these are those who are gathered around the throne right now in Revelation 6. This is who John's describing. And we would think that these who gave their lives for the cause of Jesus, who are around the throne, would be at rest. Their suffering's over. They've been delivered. They're in God's presence. We think they would be at peace. But no, it says that they are restless. And they are told to wait and rest a little while longer until God's sovereign master plan is fulfilled. They recognize there's more to the story than what they're about. And in verse 10, we see them crying out to God, how long, O God, will you wait and let evil run the gamut of earth? They're crying out, how long will you allow these horrible things to happen on earth? Most of us feel that way at times, don't we? How long? It shows the desire for justice in God. It shows the desire for what is right. Our longing for the glorious end. And it links us with our brothers and sisters in Christ who lived on this earth before us. See, the body in Christ is not just those alive here and now who are Christians. The body of Christ extends to even those who inhabited this place before us as they lived their life for God. Psalm 13 is known as a lament song in a psalm and it cries out, "How long, God, how long?" You see God encourages us to express our pain and disappointment to him. He longs for us to share our pain. He longs for us to share our longings. And we cry out like the people, the psalmists have cried out. Psalm 13 illustrates for us, as does many, many other psalms, what the Christian is supposed to do with their pain. Many times as Christians, we don't know what to do with our pain and we end up hurting other people in the body of Christ. God put into place something for us, a mechanism, a process to deal with our pain, and it's called lament. We did a series on this a while back, and this is how God teaches us to deal with pain. The first thing we do with our pain is we turn to God. We go back to Him, not to everybody else. We go to God, and we voice our complaint to Him, God, why would you let this happen? And you can let God have it, He's big enough to handle that. We see psalm after psalm after psalm. People pouring out their complaint. And then we ask. We say, God, will you come into this place and help here? This is wrong. Will you bring your help? And as you go through this process, God in his grace comes. And he gives you this a grace that allows you to trust. This is the process of lament. And this is what we see these martyrs doing. They're eager for God to close the pages of time and bring judgment and bring the new heaven and new earth. That's what they want Him to do. They're praying what was prayed in Psalm 94 1 to 3. The Lord is a God who avenges. O oh God who avenges, shine forth, rise up, judge of the earth, pay back the proud what they deserve. How long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? The Bible says longing for end times judgment is a legitimate longing. It's a thirst for righteousness. It's a desire to see Suffering and injustice stop, and the goodness of God reign. Bring your judgment, O oh God. Really? That sounds horrible. Some say, "I don't want a God of judgment. I serve a God of mercy." God is both. A God of mercy and a God of judgment. And he has to be both. God cannot be a God of mercy unless he is a God of judgment. If there's a group of people who are being oppressed, the merciful thing to do is to go in and bring judgment and stop the oppression. God can't be a God of mercy unless he is a God of judgment as well. Some say, well, what about Jesus? He said, love your enemies. And he did, but we have to finish and complete that. He said, love your enemies so that while it is time, they may see your witness and your love and be caused to turn back to God while there's still time and not be apart from him during the time of judgment. There will be a day when we can no longer turn to God. That's the day of judgment. But it's not today. Today, the Bible says is the day of salvation when people can still come and have this done, have Jesus pay their price so that they can live with him forever. There are more people yet to be saved. That's why God waits. That's why he doesn't answer the cry of the martyrs because there's still time that has to take place. He has everything under his perfect control. I said last week that sometimes it's a good thing that our prayers aren't answered the way we want. This is a great example of that. If God answered the prayer of this psalmist and said, bring your judgment now, none of us would be here right now. He has everything under control. He has everything moving towards his right and just plan and nothing can overthrow or change that. The reason he's waiting is because those who we see in the pages of scripture that are called the elect have not come to Christ yet. Not all those elected have been saved to Christ yet. What does elect or election mean? It's a theological term that means those who've been appointed to be saved And there's two main views of how you get to be elect, and I'm not going to dive too much into that. One view is that God, in his foreknowledge, saw all the people who would make a decision to follow Christ, and they are the elect. Another view is that God sovereignly chose and divinely chose those who would be elect and be saved. It really doesn't matter. That's been a debate that's been going on for thousands of years. It'll never be solved. And in our denomination, you could hold the both views because we see both in scripture. The important thing is there's a group of people that are called the elect that will be saved. And God is pausing the judgment until such a time that he sees fit. That's what the book of Revelation is teaching us. So we wait patiently to fulfill his purpose. Seal five is the martyrs around the altar. Now we move into seal six. Jesus Christ is breaking seal six off of the scroll in heaven. And this is what John sees. Seal number six has three scenes to it. And if you've been in the book of Revelation like we have for a while, you say, well, of course it does. Because nothing can be straightforward, right? So now we have number six And it has three scenes to it. And here we have scene 1, verses 12 to 17. He says, I watched as he opened the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind the heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath Of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? A huge shift has taken place. The first four seals were the current sufferings we see on earth today. The fifth seal was the martyrs around the altar. And now, the sixth seal, we see the first picture of judgment on earth. These are the things Jesus talked about in his earthly ministry. It sounds absolutely horrific to the point where people are hiding in mountains saying, there's so much terror, let this fall and hide us from the powerful Lamb of God who's coming to judge. This is the fear and awe of God being poured out on his people or on the earth. It's something for us to be sober-minded about. We have to be careful about sequence going through Revelation. Some people like to take Revelation and put it in its nice little chronological order. If that was the case, this wouldn't be speaking of the final judgment because we have 14 more chapters left. And it's, but they try to make it fit and squeeze But it's not written chronologically. We have to take it as it is because it's written by the Apostle John who grew up in a Greco-Roman culture in a Jewish background. They don't think chronologically like we do. They think in a circular pattern. For them, the way they learn is they hear a concept and they leave it and they move on and then they hear it again and they come back to it and leave it and move on and they hear it again and come back to it it's a circular pattern. And we have to remember the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us, right? It wasn't written to us. We're not the original audience. So we have to study and figure it out and let revelation be revelation and not place our own biases upon it and take it as it comes. So we see this great day of wrath, the things that Jesus talked about when he was here on earth and what that final judgment will be like. And then verse 15, we see something really interesting. The judgment will affect all the earth, but here he pulls out the powerful. It says in verse 15, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty. Why does he pull those out and kind of highlight them? Who martyred the martyrs? Those in power, not the weak. Rulers who opposed God have a particular accountability for the world's resistance to the gospel. And here we see the lamb with his power on display, his awful power and judgment on those pouring out his wrath on those who rejected him in the gospel. It's a sober picture. But I would suggest, though it's hard to read, and it's hard to imagine, and it's hard to see, the power of God in action, these words are a gift of grace to us. In 1915, on May 7th, there was a British ocean liner named the Louisiana and it was going across the ocean, and it was torpedoed by a German military ship. The torpedo hit the ship, and it took a devastating blow, and the captain of this ocean liner on May 7th, 1915, decided, I'm not going to say the truth of what happened, because I don't want to stir up a big, huge riot on the ship. I'm just going to hide the truth. And so he announced, though we hit something, we are in fine shape, and the ship will make it to our destination. And everyone on the chip, ship cheered, cheered and went back to their normal things that they were doing. 1,198 passengers of the 1,959 perished that day. See, Jesus speaks about the final judgment not to scare us, but to warn us so that we can take action in these days. This is an act of grace. This is an act of love. It's not meant to produce a fear that would lead to condemnation. It's meant to produce a fear that would lead to turning to him. So that's scene one of the sixth seal. Scene two, chapter seven, verses one to eight. John just saw the final judgment, scene one. Now, don't let this fool you. You're going to see this and say, what's going on? But now there's a flashback from scene one. Chronologically, scene two happens before scene one. Look at Revelation chapter seven, verses one to eight. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of earth, holding back the the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. So we just saw in scene one, the judgment of earth. Now we're seeing angels holding back the judgment that's to come on earth. Verse two, Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servant of God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From Reuben, 12,000. From Gad, 12,000. From Asher, 12,000. From Naphtali, 12,000. From Manasseh, 12,000. From Simeon, 12,000. From Levi, 12,000. From Issachar, 12,000. From Zebulun, 12,000. From Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Here's a flashback. A restraint before the judgment for an amazing purpose we're gonna get into. As I said, chronologically, this scene happens before scene one. But there's this restraining of the judgment. The angels are holding back until the proper time. And this scene tells us something wonderful. It tells us that the reason judgment is held back is because all of God's people have to be sealed. They have to be protected before the final judgment comes out. The people of God need to be taken care of first before God pours his judgment out upon the earth. The 12 tribes represent all of God's people, not just the Jewish people. The martyrs had a wait. The martyrs around the throne saying, now, Jesus, Go pour out the wrath, bring the new heavens to the earth, let it happen now. They had to wait because of what we see here. Evangelism and conversions are happening. God's people are being sealed and more people are coming to Christ. God is giving people a chance to give their lives to Christ before the end occurs, while there's time. Notice in verse 3, it talks about a seal on the forehead. Later in Revelation, we will see that the followers of the beast will have a mark on their forehead. Could this be a contrast that in the end days we'll see and know those who are following Christ clearly and those who are following the beast In this scene, the angels are gathered around all the elect, those who will be Christians, uh, is why he's holding back the judgment to let that happen until the number is complete. And all those God knows who will give their lives to him are sealed and protected, keeping them from the final judgment. It says 144,000 will be sealed. That's a symbolic number, it's not literal. Because if you look at verse 9 of chapter 7, it says a multitude that cannot be counted will be there at the end. So this is a symbolic number. If you run into Jehovah's Witness, one of the things they believe is it's not symbolic. It is an exact number. Jehovah's Witness believe only 144,000 will enter heaven. And you can take them to the next chapter 7 verse 9 that says a whole multitude will happen. And not only do we see from that verse 9 that these tribes are not just the tribes of Israel, but we see the Gentiles are enfolded because in verse 9, every nation, every ethnicity, every ethnicity is represented at the end. The work of Jesus Christ sealing and paying our debt of sin expands to every ethnic group in the entire world people from all different ethnicities will come it's not just for the people of Israel both groups jew and gentile will be saved in heaven enlisted here are the 12 tribes of Israel that appear throughout the old testament we see them first in the book of genesis that's where the original list is from and if you cross-reference this list from the list of Genesis, you'll find that there's a tribe missing. It's called the tribe of Dan. You can understand why I was quite concerned when I saw the tribe of Dan was missing from the seal of protection of judgment. And you laughed, but I think a case could be made. You're in the tribe of Dan by attending Crossview Church. Not only is Dan missing, but Ephraim is as well. And the reason Dan and Ephraim are missing is because the leaders of the tribes of Dan and Ephraim fell into idolatry and false worship in Judges 18 and 1 Corinthians 12. And so they were enfolded into the tribe of Manasseh. And the original audience hearing this would have known that like that. And it would have been a warning to them to not mess around with false teaching, that like we saw earlier in the book of Revelation and the letters of the churches, but to stay true to the gospel. There is only one way to get to heaven, and that's faith in Jesus Christ. There's—it's not for one specific ethnicity. It's not because you have good conduct or behavior. It's because you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ in him alone. Scene one, judgment comes. Scene two, judgment is halted. So there's conversion of unbelievers and believers will be sealed. Now we come to scene three and John gets totally blown away. Scene three, chapter seven, verse nine. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation. Remember, nation there isn't geographic nation, it's ethnicity. Every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Why are we here worshiping God at the end of all creation in the new heavens and the new earth because we were such great people, because we were wise, because we had this certain ethnicity? No. We are here because of jesus christ that's what they're singing all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped god saying amen praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our god forever and ever amen a great multitude that no one could count coming from every ethnicity. This is God's global church. This is the purpose that God intended when he sent Christ to the cross to ransom a great multitude who would be with him in the end in the new heavens and new earth, worshiping him, enjoying the world the way we hoped it would be and beyond our wildest imaginations with our God. And they're here because of what Jesus did. God the Father brought us here through God the Son and sealed us with God the Spirit, saying to Satan who said, if you didn't pay this, you're mine. No, bought by the blood of the Lamb of God, sealed and protected. And then judgment will come to finalize and destroy Satan and his works forever not because we are good, not because our good outweighed our bad, not because we are wise, but because of Jesus Christ alone. This is a picture of the final ending place. No more sin, no more shame, no more suffering, no more regret, no more guilt, no more pain, no more tears. And how do you get there? Jesus Christ alone. You see, that's why this is so important. Because every human being faces a debt they can't pay before a holy God. The standard is perfection. But none of us have within our own ability enough perfection or enough rightness within us to produce the perfection that's required We need a perfection from outside ourselves. That's why God sent Jesus to live the perfect life for us. Then after a life of perfection, he went to the cross sinless. And then on the cross became sin for us. Paying the punishment that was due to us so that we could be set free and brought back into peace and relationship with God and reign with him forever and ever when the judgment is done. Praise be to God. This is what it means to have the righteousness of Jesus applied to you. This is what it means to have the blood of Jesus applied to you. Your savior and your mediator Stand ready to pay your debt of perfect obedience that you can't pay. Have you invited Jesus Christ into your life yet? Have you surrendered your heart to him? Have you come to that place where you deny yourself and you say, Jesus, I want to live for you? The Bible says you have to repent, which is a turning from your ways to God and believe, which isn't just an intellectual belief that Jesus exists, but it's a belief that causes you to take yourself off the throne of your heart and place him there and say, from now on, you rule and reign over me. You are my savior and my Lord. Have you done that? If you haven't, this is the perfect day to do that. And so I'm going to give you time. We're going to have a moment of silence. And if you've never done that, I invite you to take this time and and talk to God. The words aren't what matters. It's what's behind the words, the intentions of your heart. If you say, God, I want to follow you. Will you please forgive me of my sin? I want to make you Lord of my life. Come into my life and pay that debt. And maybe you've done that. This would be a great time to recommit your life to Christ. What a great Sunday for us to celebrate communion where we remember what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, where we remember this. That was what communion is all about, to remember what he did. But before we get to that, let's spend some time in silence before our God, responding to his word. And so I'm going to give you that time now. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you for all that he did for us on the cross. Paying a debt we could not pay. Giving us a righteousness we could not earn. Giving us favor with you that we did not deserve and could not produce on our own. Thank you for your heart towards us, your children. And Lord, we open our hearts to you now and remember the price that was paid. And we say, We are a grateful people. We thank you, Lord. Help this thought, help all that we talked about this morning be settled in our hearts as we. Turn now and remember what you did again through the cross by taking communion. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please take your communion elements this time. You don't have to be a member of Crossview Church to take communion. You just need to be a member of the body of Christ. So if you've given your life to Jesus, please take part. Parents, you are the spiritual leaders of your home, and so if your children understand what Jesus did for them and they've given their lives to Christ and they understand communion they can join us in this time on the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed he took the bread and he broke it and he'd given thanks and he said this is my body which has been broken for you do this in memory of me In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus Christ, we come before you now. And we thank you for the gift of your blood, what you did for us on the cross to save us from our sins and the penalty that was supposed to come. We thank you for your grace and your love. We thank you for your perfection applied to our account because of what you did for us. Allow this truth to sink deeper into our hearts and our souls. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.